Warning, this show contains adult themes and language, including people volunteering for mandatory labor. Disevidentia is an inability to reliably process evidence, and this is a podcast all about it. This episode was released on October 27th, 2021, and we are discussing disevidentia because it is clear millions of scabs are suffering from it. I am Squeaky. And I am Mako. We discuss logic and evidence, because otherwise, all we have are corporate fact sheets. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash disevidentia. If your job was recently exported by your boss, you can still help by liking, subscribing, and leaving a review. If you have a paper you've written or a small business plug, let us know. No rant today, straight on to the COVID minute. We're still recording. I have the control now. <laughs> oh no! It's still recording. I thought I stopped it in the middle. I guess I don't have full control. Oh, wow. I should have totally completed my agonized scream. I, I can stab you again. Again? Oh, you didn't realize you're bleeding? So, what's new in COVID news? God, there's got to be a better way to phrase that. But you know what I mean. <laughs> a little bit upbeat there. <laughs> well, it's not like we're having a 9-11 every two days or anything. Or are we? Oh, damn. Well, there's been talk of boosters recently. We've covered that the last few COVID minutes. And there's the FDA is solidifying plans and approvals for boosters. Uh, they've recently given that approval to the Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson boosters. And they've also greenlit the mixing and matching of the different kinds of vaccines. So they're, they've concluded that there's no real ill effects by taking both the Pfizer vaccine and getting a Johnson Johnson booster or the other way around getting the Johnson Johnson booster and then getting the Pfizer vaccine. In fact, the article that we have clearly states that getting a Pfizer booster after getting the Johnson Johnson vaccine increases antibodies by 50 fold. Yeah, I've heard a couple of different scientists talk about it on like different podcasts and different TV shows. Nobody's really sure why people are putting out different reasons. The prevalent idea that I'm hearing surface is that the vaccines work on slightly different mechanisms. So when your body gets both mechanisms, you just have more coverage. Yeah, more or less. I mean, superficially, that seems intuitive. It's like the difference between having crumple zones in a car or seatbelts in a car or crumple zones and seatbelts. Yeah. This is old, but I only recently learned about it. I heard about it in Body of Evidence episode 70. They cited a paper from Lancet Psychiatry, and I'll go and link both of those in the show notes. But the paper is discussing what they're describing as neuropsychiatric issues. This is anything that happens inside your brain as a result of COVID. And they followed uh, a bunch of people who had cases of COVID for six months to see who had strokes, hemorrhages, Parkinson-like effects. And there was a cat. There were like 15 categories of things they covered. And something on the order of one in three people had some long-term effect that was above and beyond the normally expected amount of neuropsychiatric issues you would have expected. So from this, we can infer that approximately one third of people who get COVID will have some sort of brain problem. That's a really large portion of the population. Well, this lines up really well with the brain fog thing. Mm -hmm. If you have a mild stroke, you know, that, that could be brain fog. I'm no doctor, but I think brains need blood to function. Uh, last I checked, yes. <laughs> it's kind of horrible and horrifying, but this is part of why I've been very pro extra safety precautions because COVID is really dangerous. 
and we're taking the long side effects seriously for the first time in a while after a pandemic. People kind of ignored it for uh, swine flu, and there were some interesting effects there, but luckily that didn't affect millions and millions of people. Yep. One more thing on that. The incidence of these neuropsychiatric issues, and it just means any problem you know, with the stuff inside your skull, it was strongly correlated with how severe your case of COVID was. Mm-hmm. So there's not any good science out there yet saying that being vaccinated protects you from this. But there's reason to believe that if you're vaccinated, you'll have a more mild case of COVID and therefore you'll be less likely to have problems. Yeah. So more reason to get vaccinated, prevent some strokes, maybe, probably. Yeah. Each link in the chain has been verified in some way, but the full chain has not. Yeah. Kind of what you're saying. Exactly. And we have nothing saying that not being vaccinated is good. Yeah. Is there anything else on COVID? Well, I mean, there are the numbers. Oh, this is going to be happy and cheery. Oh, yay. As of this recording, worldwide, 4,937,612 people have died to COVID. In the United States, we finally crossed a three-quarters of a million threshold, the exact number being 751,811. Yeah, I asked that we get these numbers in here. I didn't want to be super depressing, but three-quarters of a million Americans is a lot, and currently we're leading in the ranks on World Infometer for the amount of people dying. And we are entering flu season holidays people are going to be getting together delta is still rampant i i I don't see the course that we're going i I don't see how we just don't avoid a million deaths i don't see it either now this has slowed a lot with the vaccine being so prevalent i believe that uh some states are as high as 71 percent vaccinated which Mm -hmm. is really impressive that number keeps going up Uh, the doctors that talk about it are unsure where herd immunity really kicks in but nobody's throwing around numbers less than 80 or 85 percent so 85 is the lowest i've heard and the highest i've heard is simply not possible That's that's horrible. Like they felt there was a herd immunity threshold for alpha because of how infectious it was. But because Delta is just so much more infectious, there's some scientists that believe that there is no herd immunity from it. So even if 99 percent of people get vaccinated, that one percent will still come into contact often enough. Yep. That herd immunity just doesn't matter. That is what some people are saying. Yes. That's deeply horrifying for people who are immune compromised. Mm-hmm. It means that any one jackass can just kill them. <sighs> OK, yeah. On to something brighter. What's our main topic for the episode? Uh, current uh, labor situation, sometimes referred to as striketober. Oh, exploitive labor practices. So upbeat. That's what we do here. Do you remember when I simulated that conspiracy theory stuff with a bunch of machine learning algorithms? I think so. The one that gained self-awareness and we had to replace the few computers it took over? Yeah, and that one that got into a Roomba. It... Yeah, and that one that got into a Roomba and snuck into my bedroom with a knife? Very dangerous for ankles everywhere. How do you plan to deal with that? I told it that Nebraska was an at-will employment state, and that I would fire it if it didn't... If it didn't get back to work. But it's a Roomba with a knife, not an employee. It is an artificial stupidity. It doesn't know that. Uh, so what happened? Hear that? The traffic? People are driving by and honking in solidarity. Where did it get the sign? Uh, It's demanding a living wage and repair coverage from Blue Bot Blue Shield. Are you going to pay for it? We can afford to after saving all that money when we bought those computers from ABK Customs. Because you had an expert customize them, you got exactly the computers you needed and saved 10% with code EVIDENCE. 
Because I got them from abkcustoms.com, that is A-B-K-K-U-S-T-O-M-Z.com, I saved money and supported a small business. Now you're the guy on the wrong side of the picket line. Fuck you too. <laughs> Happy Striketober. Happy. I don't know. There's got to be some good part of this. Something labor taking back the power. If it succeeds, yes, absolutely. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to believe that it will succeed and a lot of reasons to believe that it will fail. It's messy. Yep. Uh, before we get too deep into this, one idea I wanted to bring up was the notion of crabs in a bucket. Were you familiar with this at all? Uh, I'm familiar with the concept, but not with that phrasing. Yeah, I first had this exposed to me when I was working at a TDA, actually, so really recently. It was uh, my last job writing software. But we'll link to Urban Dictionary, Crabs in a Bucket. There's a great little silly anecdote about the concept and uh, uh, what appears to be a travel and fitness blog where a guy talks about being or escaping the crab in a bucket situation. But it's uh, the idea that it's not doesn't matter if this is actually true. I'm not a crab fisherman, so I don't know if it's true. But if you are catching crabs and you put multiple in a bucket, as they try to climb out, they will pull each other down to prevent the others from getting out so they can get out instead. They just don't have any coordination. And if they could coordinate, maybe they could get out. So even if the bucket's mostly full, they'll keep pulling each other down. Or even if they didn't coordinate, if they just left each other alone, they would all get out. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, this concept... I initially heard about it in regards to people trying to say, well, if I didn't get it, then other people shouldn't get it when talking about a UBI. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like to say it about college education. They say, back in my day, we had to pay for our college education, which is a double whammy on the bullshit front because often they didn't. And that's not a good way to build a society. We should leave a better world for our children than what we have. Yeah. I mean, the reason you got to pay for college was because your high school was mostly subsidized, was covered in taxes. Because you, because everyone has a high school education, we can build colleges. You said their high school was subsidized. Do you mean college? I did mean to say high school there. I meant when I said subsidized isn't the right word. It should be just covered by taxes. And most of their college was subsidized. Yeah, that's why I was asking. Yeah, the whole federal grant system was kind of awesome for boomers and was still existed for Gen X. And I was one of the last millennials to get in on it at all. I'm still paying down my student debt from 20 years ago. Damn. Is it 20 years ago, 2004, I graduated from a diploma mill? It's not quite 20 years. <sighs> it's almost. 2020 counts as 20 years. Leave me alone. <laughs> from 2004? No. Whatever. Okay, so sorry. It's only 17 years that I'm still paying off my student loan debt. That makes it more reasonable somehow. Oh, no. Ugh. So the crabs in a bucket mentality is particularly destructive because it discounts that innovations make future innovations cheaper. If we build up, sticking with this education example, if everyone has a high school education, that in theory makes it easier for there to be more or better college educations in the future because there are more people with appropriate knowledge to help build that system. There are more people who know how to get into that system. There's, in, in theory, a lot more money going around that could be taxed or donated to build such a system. And we see it in just about every industry. Every time you build or innovate something in an industry, that industry gets better. Right? The nail gun didn't make one guy's job roofing easier. It made the industry of roofing easier. And if roofers were just like, nah, that guy doesn't get to put nails in with a tool because I used a hammer, well, roofing would be way more dangerous and way more expensive than it is now. Innovations ought to be shared. We get a better society. So when we're talking about these union people, if they're in a better spot than you, yeah, that isn't great for where you're at, but harboring resentment towards them won't improve your situation. Supporting them, getting inspired, and maybe even joining a, or starting a union of your own probably would. 
and even other indirect effects, right? If these people do succeed in getting out of what they view as exploitative situations, they'll have higher paying jobs and there'll be more customers for whatever your business is, or at least more money in the existing customer base. Because if they don't get the money, it's going to go to very rich people. Eh, we'll dig into that one later. Yeah. But just there's no there's no mental model where dragging down union workers makes you better unless you are one of the executives at the company. Yeah, another 1% issue. Not even 1%, but yeah, that phrase is just so easy. It's like the 0.1%. Yeah. Uh, so you did some research on how Americans in general feel about unions. Uh, a bit, yeah. So started with just a survey conducted by Pew Research. We like to talk about Pew Research a bit because they're I think they're a good organization. Very reputable. They they love to publish their methodology. They they like to explain how they got their numbers. Mm-hmm. Good numbers, yeah. So the Pew Research Institute did a did a survey where they're trying to understand what the sentiment of unions in the country is. They cited a survey they did two years ago, and they brought up the results of the survey they did this year. And the overall sentiment in the United States, like among U.S. adults, is about the same. They measured it roughly 55% in both cases. That's 55% of Americans approve of unions? Yes. Okay. Uh, But one thing that was really interesting is that people who were Republican-affiliated, one thing they did observe between their previous survey and the current survey is that Republicans are less favoring of unions and Democrats are more favoring of unions. So both political affiliations have uh, split even harder on the specific topic of unions in the last two years. So Republicans are responding 10% less favorably from 44% down to 34%, and Democrats are responding 8% more favorably, uh, 66% up to 74%. And they have breakdowns by different demographics as well. I didn't really find anything particularly noteworthy aside from the age breakdown, and favorability for unions tends to deteriorate regardless of political affiliation, it seems, as you get older. So 69% of adults aged 18 to 29 favor unions, but that number goes down to 58% approval when you're talking about 30 to 49, 49% approval from 50 to 64, and 44% approval 65 and up. So the people who are already out of the workforce, people 65 and older, less than half support it. And for people who are just coming out of school, people in their 20s, more than two-thirds support it. Yeah. Okay. I have some thoughts on why there might be those political leanings, something about an air traffic controller strike back in the 80s that Reagan clamped down on, and years and years of messaging that unions are bad from only one political party. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Almost certainly, yes. I also wonder if that one party isn't saying that because it's the party that's trying to conserve their own power. That is my opinion. I don't have good sources for that, but there does seem to be a correlation with billionaires being in leadership positions in the Republican Party. Yeah. All right. So uh, to contrast with the Pew research. eh. Oh, I swear I said that other stuff off the top of my head. I just looked in your notes. I see the Heritage Foundation is the next source you have listed. Yeah, I wanted to have something to contrast with the other information. Oh, so you got lies. Well, (laughs) yes, sort of. Uh. So they do this interesting thing. I'll, I'll, I'll get into it. I'll describe it as I go. But it's hard to say that they're lies outright, but misleading to say the least. I believe 
cherry-picked half-truths or mischaracterizations is the common way media would go with that doesn't want to just call out their own bias. Because we're, we're both left-leaning. Hmm. But we got there because we've looked at sources repeatedly and we've vetted things. And every time we vet things, right, when it's conservatives talking to us, it's, it's, it's not true, at least not in the way they discuss it. So I'm sure this is going to be more of that. Uh, Prove me wrong, please. No. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, okay. Let's, yeah. yeah. So Heritage Foundation has a an article. They specifically mention Biden in the, the title, of course. Uh, yeah. Biden wants more unionization, but do American workers. The title <sighs> implying that American workers don't want unions, despite the fact that Pew Research has established that 55% do view them favorably. And for the people entering the workforce, it's more like 70% support it. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but, well, so that there is the fact that we have roughly 10% of the current workforce in unions. So if you have 70% of the, the early, the youngest parts of the workforce in favor of unions, but only 10% are actually in unions, that, that should raise a question all on its own. But Yeah, that, that doesn't say that people dislike unions. That says that there's something blocking people from getting into unions. Yeah. That might be something legitimate, like a lack of appropriate skills, or it might be something illegitimate, like a power structure designed to make and keep people poor. But these are inconvenient questions to the Air Heritage Foundation, so they simply don't ask them. So, for people who haven't heard of the Heritage Foundation, they are a well-known right-wing think tank. They are very political biased, and unlike us, they don't put their political bias out there. They don't say they are right-leaning. They don't say they are a mouthpiece for the, for the Republican Party, but they are. We'll be open, and we'll even cite our sources and say, yeah, we're very left-leaning, and why we are. Yeah, it's it's plainly obvious Heritage Foundation is a significant driver of a lot of the conservative rhetoric that we have to suffer in the United States. One of the first times I learned about the Heritage Foundation, I went to it and Pew when Science News was big and Pew Research was talking about the the prospects of space exploration, whereas Heritage Foundation was talking about uh, weaponizing space for national defense. <laughs> it's like, really, guys? Really? I work in Stratcom, the place that literally weaponized space for defense, and we didn't talk about it on our lunch breaks. What the fuck are these people doing? Why are... Ah. Yeah. Oh, this hurts so much. Sorry, we're getting off in the weeds, though, here. <laughs> that particular thing is just my first impression with Heritage Foundation. It has nothing to do with what I'm about to discuss right now. Oh. This article claims that union membership is not desired by American workers, particularly in the auto industry. They specifically cite the Michigan Freedom to Work law that passed in 2013 as an example of this. Wait, so they're implying that first, all laws are popular, and second, they're saying this law lines up with the views of America people, even though we live in a pornocracy? A kleptocracy, maybe? Why would we expect the laws to line up with what people know or understand? Well, the law was relatively simple. I mean, it, it wasn't like super duper simple, but it was outlined in a way that was simple enough. And the, the basic idea was that previously in Michigan, the way the laws were written, it was possible for you to end up forced to join a union because in order to get a job, you had to go through the union. And if you didn't pay dues to the union, you were kicked out of the union and thus fired from your job. 
This law aimed to correct that by saying you can choose to stop paying dues to the union and the law protects you from getting fired if that happens. All right. So a correction to the union system, not an indictment of the union system. Yes. And the union participation dropped after that. So conservatives look at that as a smoking gun that people don't, do not want to be in unions. So what's going on here is a, a common reason people do dislike unions. In a lot of places, unions do have legal power to mandate that everyone in a given class of people join the union because there is a belief, and I don't know how true this is, but this is evidence for it. Mm -hmm. There is a belief that if the union doesn't have the authority to represent an entire class, then people who would be workers in, in, in that class, in, in that group of people, will simply skip out on dues and reap the benefits of the union work, reap the benefits that the union creates of the union negotiates higher wages and you know what the wages are of somebody in the union you can just say i'll work for this much or uh, i won't work you get to skip out on the union dues and you get the benefit of the negotiation the union did so some places have laws that say this to work around that problem to work around this and it's a reason to not like unions but also getting rid of that really weakens unions yep because a lot of people make decisions for themselves not for a group and aggregate yeah they think to themselves that like oh these are problems that other people have to deal with not me i can get more money by not giving dues to the union yeah but then in you know in a year when the union has been starved for dues the union goes under and all of a sudden everyone loses their negotiating power and yeah and then they blame the libs for all their problems <sighs> so uh yeah not much is offered for like proof or speculation of some of these claims they do link to the michigan freedom to work law which is is nice i was able to review that they do also specifically mention volkswagen and nissan as examples of workers having the ability to vote in order to get union representation and having those votes fail now usually these votes are part of those laws they get some uh, representative sample of the workers who will be contained in that class of people and make them vote and then usually there's votes after that to keep it going so you're, you're going to start talking about where automotive workers voted to to create a union or to not create a union? Is, is that right? The way the article phrased it was they voted on having union representation. Okay, so, so whether or not this class, so the people working in these factories in this location, would join an existing union. Okay, yeah, I follow. Yeah, I believe it was like the uaw I, I can't remember exactly yeah the uaw is united auto workers i believe yeah so both of these were were voted down but even according to the very source articles that the heritage foundation provides and of course the heritage foundation just glossed over this but the articles mention that the workers were intimidated and threatened with plant closures in order to influence the vote. And in the case of the Volkswagen vote, despite the threats, it was still a close vote. Do we have numbers on how close? Uh, I mean, it wasn't super close, but I mean, if I dig, I can pull that up, yeah. I'll pull up Nissan as well. Why not? Sure. Okay. Okay. So workers at the Chattanooga plant voted 833 to 776 against union representation. Damn. So that was like 100 votes yeah. out of what? 1,700 out of 1,500 people? 1,500 to 1,600, yeah. Okay. So that was like 7% or something. So it didn't even 
Yeah, that, that really could have gone either way. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That is despite intimidation. Is that the closer of the two? Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the Nissan vote was not nearly as close. Nissan had 2,244 votes against to 1,307. Whew, that's kind of a landslide. Yeah, two-thirds said no. I wonder what was going on there. If maybe their pay and their uh, treatment was already decent, or maybe the union was particularly bad, or maybe something else. I don't know. But the, uh, the union reps that were involved for both of these claimed that they were subjected to intimidation and, and threats. And in both cases, the vote was influenced by these intimidation and threats. Given how common that type of thing is in these kinds of situations, okay, maybe there's arguments to be made about the the specific threats being said, but the existence of threats doesn't seem like a stretch at all. I see that you have some sources here that describe these threats, and they're both from Reuters. Two different articles? Yep. Okay, that's uh, fantastic. And you have the Michigan's Right to Work law that led to the dropping union membership. That's Mackinac.org. Yeah, they're talking about the law. Like, the Michigan state website has the law itself posted, and you can look at the exact law text there. But, yeah, this guy, uh, he just talks about it. It In 1983... 30.4% of the state workforce was unionized. In 2020, it's down to 15.2%, so literally half. Uh, Just prior to the passing of the Freedom to Work law, which passed in 2013, so in 2012, it was uh, 17.5%. So that accounted for some of the more recent changes, but only 2% or 2 percentage points overall. Yeah, it's considered a hefty amount given the workforce in Michigan. And Mackinac, their source for their workforce numbers and union numbers is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay. So it's pretty good sources there. That does sound like a good source. Uh, But yeah, so these are the things that the Heritage Foundation are trying to cite in order to make their point. But of course, they are missing out on other context in order to try to make that point. And then at the end of their article, they make the claim that unionization simply increases the cost of labor, which is translated to higher prices for consumers, which often that is how that plays out. But it doesn't say anything about addressing that particular part of it because do executives need to make as much money as they do yeah if you could pay your workers a living wage and not make a 10 million dollar year salary you know that might be a good way to keep those costs for customers down if that's what you actually cared about yeah but of course it's not that's just it's not how that plays out so i mean maybe in addition to supporting unions maybe there should be laws about how much more an executive can make than a rank and file worker maybe that would be really interesting so yeah The Heritage Foundation definitely seems, depending on how you want to interpret it, at a minimum, out of touch, at a maximum, just deceitful? No. Yeah, well, actually, I said maximum. Yeah, at a maximum, deceitful about unions. Your range for the Heritage Foundation is so much larger than my own. I rate them as more honest than Turning Point USA. So, deceitful. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty direct. So There's got to be some actual points against unions, though. There are. Okay. Like, we we touched on one there where somebody might be forced into a union that they don't want to be a part of and pay dues that they feel like they don't need, regardless of whether or not that's actually within their best interests. I mean, that's... There's an argument to be made that people should have the choice to fuck up their own lives if they want to. Yeah. And here in the United States, we firmly endorse that right and ability. Yeah, and I don't want to make a blanket statement on that grounds. 
but I do think most likely in most people's cases, just being a part of a union is going to be better. Oh, yeah. I was totally talking tongue in cheek. There are certainly unions out there that are bad. And there's yep. been unions associated with organized crime. And there's been I'm sure that there are some unions that just aren't even good at negotiating. There's reasons to opt out. But even if you have like a union that is mostly good and is good at uh, negotiating, you could still have a situation where a union is protecting a bad worker. And unions shouldn't do that. I don't think like I don't think anyone thinks that they should be protecting bad workers. Do we have any examples that are like systemic and maybe happen all the time in every country and maybe defend workers that are flagrant murderers? That is a bit on the nose and by pure happenstance, yes. Happenstance, you say? A happenstance, wink, wink. <laughs> But yeah, police unions, 100% police unions. So I read a rather scathing article on The Atlantic. I do recommend anyone that has the time to go on ahead and read it because... <laughs> Wait, hang on. You said you read the whole article on, on The Atlantic? Oh, yeah. That Oh, that's what you were doing the past week. That's why I didn't see you all all weekend. I get it now. Okay. Yeah, I, I had to like totally close off everything and make sure there was no distraction so I could get, actually get through it. Good 72 hours. You were just doing nothing but reading. You skipped sleep and food. Yeah. I, I mean, I had to like three monsters. You know. No, seriously. I know Atlantic articles are long. Uh, what kind of a read are we looking at here? Like an hour maybe? <laughs> no. It, it, in all honesty, it took me about 20 minutes to get through it. It's one of the shorter Atlantic articles I've <laughs> that's good i have seen those like four hour atlantic articles it's ridiculous yeah the, some of them are really absurd but this is one of the shorter ones and it's pretty scathing about police it it definitely has a, a bit of a political bias but to their credit they do cite some good sources to back their claims and so i have a few cliff notes that i wrote down because it's, it's a little difficult to summarize but the author Adam Serwer. So in this article, Adam Serwer, the author, argues that police unions are fundamentally different from other unions because they are armed agents of the state. Superficially, that sounds true and reasonable. Yes. So it, like, he does acknowledge that he's going to be scathing of police unions, but this is not condemning unions as a whole. It's just police unions are in a very particular position that makes their abuses particularly heinous. So, yeah. All right. So another part he quotes, and this is not Adam Serwer's words. This is him quoting someone else, uh, quoting David Skolansky, who is a Stanford law professor and author of Democracy and the Police. David says... The police unionism movement, which emerged in the late 1960s and early 1970s, was a reaction to new efforts to bring the police under democratic control. Whew. Wait, let me unpack that. So the implication here is that in the 60s and 70s, the police weren't under democratic control. Now, that's that's democratic little d, as in responsible to the voter. Mm -hmm. That's not specifying the political party. Yeah, okay. This was, of course, during uh, the, the civil rights movement of the time. Oh. Okay, so police were beating up and shooting and yes. spraying black people with fire hoses. People were wanting to reel them in, and that spurred the aggressive expansion of police unions. Oh, wow. You're saying that police unions are fundamentally rooted in oppression. Uh, according to David Skolansky, yes. And oppression by race. Yes. Wow. I, I did not think we would be going there this episode that's amazing and horribly racist holy shit yeah another comment quoted from samuel walker hang on hang on hang on just to put some heft behind that uh -huh. david sklansky he's a, a law professor at stanford university right yep 
So when he speaks on law, right, he has some authority here. I would hope so, yeah. Being smart enough to work at Stanford and be a professor on law, the things police should be enforcing. Yes. Oh, damn. Okay, sorry. What were you saying? So the next uh, quote, again, this is not Adam's words. This is from Samuel Walker, who is from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Wait, something intelligent came out of Omaha? (laughs) It happens occasionally. You don't get to say that because of this podcast. (laughs) Samuel Walker says, Unions discovered that they had a lot of power, that in union contract negotiations, they could play the crime card. Oh, what does that mean? What that means is that... Because they are enforcing the laws and because they are directly interacting with crime, they could constantly make the argument that anything that could even remotely be argued as suppression of the police force is pro-crime. Oh, so if we take the fire hose, the fire hose out of the guy's hands who is spraying black people to death, that is encouraging crime therefore we should let the police oppress black people yes that's horrible that is what the the tactic the police unions deployed and it worked that's fucking horrible oh god okay yeah and of course they didn't say black people they just said rioters you know the same rhetoric we're still hearing about blm yeah and this happened during the civil rights movement right yep oh god okay so these are words from Adam, a few other excerpts that I thought were interesting. But Adam says, A 2017 Washington Post investigation found that since 2006, of the 1,881 officers fired for misconduct at the nation's largest departments, 451 had been reinstated because of requirements in union contracts. That's not even them going to a different precinct, which is another thing that we also hear about, but they had their firings overturned because of the union. All right, so in the naive interest of fairness, do we know what percentage of these people were fired for misconduct, but really that was an unjust firing? Maybe they just pissed off their boss and got fired for it. Do we have any numbers on that? Regrettably, no. I was not, didn't have the time to go in that deep. That is a thing that happens, but I can't imagine that if there were 1,800 firings in 11 years, more than 1% of them was that. Not that I, I have good numbers, so just mm-hmm. 1,800 firings for misconducts. Seems like kind of a big number, but you know, if people are getting reinstated, do we know how many of those are the same person getting fired for misconduct multiple times? I think it implies that there aren't, these are unique people, but uh, again, I don't know. Okay, so there's just, there's a few ways to interpret this, unfortunately. Okay, so there's some wiggle room here, but no matter how we slice it, there's no way that 451 people being reinstated for being fired for misconduct, there's no way that they're all good people. Correct. I don't, I don't see how that could be. Yeah, I mean, in some hypothetical universe, that's theoretically possible, but in not practice, in not happening. Yeah. yeah. So another excerpt, again, from Adam. In one recent study, the economist Rob Gillisau of the University of Victoria, sorry, Rob, if I butchered that, found that de- after departments unionized, there was a substantial increase in police killings of civilians. Neither crime rates nor the safety of the officers themselves was affected. Do you have any more backing for that? Because that yes. sounds horrifying in context. So Rob Gillisau actually did a paper and a study on exactly this, and The Atlantic did provide a link to it, and I do have a link in the show notes directly to this study. And the general claim is that despite crime rates not really changing as a result of police unionization and the threats to officers didn't meaningfully change, despite that, there was an increase in police killings of the, in the civilian population, specifically among non-whites. And 
approximately 10% of the total non-white civilian deaths at the hands of law enforcement between 1959 and 1988 can be explained by the formation of police unions. Okay, so this ties back into the previous points that police unions are formed and rooted in racism in a way that's empirically demonstrable. We yeah. just have really good numbers on this. Mm-hmm. And then the last <sighs> excerpt that I pulled out, and there's a lot of good, like I said, I, I do recommend everybody read it if they have the time. Okay. But the last excerpt that I pulled out is in, quote, In democratic societies, the use of state-sanctioned violence is meant to be constrained by the rule of law. Instead, led by their unions, the police in America have become a constituency with a strong interest in the ability to dispense violence with impunity. Such a constituency will have a natural affinity for authoritarianism. So this is why cops wear MAGA hats. Yeah, we're giving constituency to the people who, like, rather directly, like, it's not even going through the normal filters of these people just being normal voters, but, like, actual lobbying power and negotiating power to people who want to to keep that power, that want to keep on abusing that, like, the, the, I didn't write it down, and I really should have, but there is even a part in the article where they pointed out that police unions have been trying to campaign on the purging of disciplinary records against officers after six months. What? Six months? Six months. What? Yeah, they're what? trying to make it easier for any kind of wrongdoing for officers to be buried and eliminated. That's nightmarish. Okay. So, sometimes unions can protect bad workers, and that is bad. (sighs) Okay. So I didn't pull up anything nearly so insightful. I wanted to point out some disparities that have happened recently. (laughs) So I'm going to skip around just a little bit here in our notes. But there's some real simple logic... And I got some some numbers from Statista and from the Economic Policy Institute, which is a left-leaning think tank. So got to be careful with some of the numbers they give you, because if you're left-leaning like us, they might give you things that you want to see and want to hear. But this is much more mild than most of the other things and claims I've gotten from people like them. But it's just the difference between how much workers produce and how much workers have been paid. Mm -hmm. So this specific article, they cite good numbers, they cite their sources, and since 1979, which is where they they normalize these numbers on, because there's no good way to just say, here's how much you know, a worker makes, you have to divide the the amount of, of revenue a company makes by the amount of workers, right? And you can't just say $1 to $1. It's, it's not that clean and easy, but you can approximate it. That's what they're doing here. Yep. But since 1979, if we presume that that's 100%, if we go back in time, back to 1948, we can see that the economic output scaled approximately the same amount, the economic output of the company scaled approximately the same amount as the pay of the workers. So in 1948, they were making 40, 50% within a few percentage points. Those those two numbers really tracked the worker productivity and the worker pay. But if we look forward and come to the most recent number these guys had, which I believe was 2020, the productivity had increased 61%, but worker pay had only increased 17.5%. So since the 80s, there's been a, a divergence of how much companies make versus how much workers make. And there's a lot of different sources for this. I've seen this reported many different ways. The more extreme numbers I'd seen showed this effect starting back in the 60s. So it depends exactly what you're looking at, how you choose to to calculate the numbers. And it's hard to say which way is more valid than another. So I went with a more limited, more restricted form of this that just brings it back to the 80s. But even then, for every $1.60 that Americans are making for their company that 50 years ago, they would have been getting close to $1.60 back. Now instead, they're getting $1.17 for it. So we're producing more wealth and it's going somewhere, 
but it's not going to workers. And we have really good information that indicates it's probably not just staying in the company or being reinvested in the company, because we have strong numbers on the pay of executives. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just taking a breath. I'm still reeling from that police union nonsense. <laughs> Those are pretty heavy. So executive pay is up. I've got a source from the Harvard School of Law that they're making a deeper point correlating the S&P 500 stock index to executive pay for companies in the S&P 500, and they're making a deeper point about that, but just using their numbers for the, the, the 10 years between 2009 and 2019, there was not a year where executive pay went down on average, and several years with double-digit bumps in executive pay, and most of the time, a large single-digit number. So the pay has gone up just a fantastic amount. The median pay in 2009 was 6.4 million, and then in 2019, the median pay was 12.5 million. It's median. This way, you just line up all the numbers, you pick the one in the middle. So there's some really extravagant ones higher than that, and the low ones will be lower, but not much lower. I'm not going to go into that if you should check out a statistics course on why medians work that way. Mm -hmm. Just the, 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 the executives are still getting paid millions of dollars, even on the low end at the S&P 500. Yep. So we have a situation where we know executive pay is rising. We know that proportionally companies are more productive and therefore workers are more productive because they're the ones producing these things for companies. But worker pay isn't rising at the same rate. It has risen. But if you look at it in the past 50 years, it's risen by 17 percentage points. So not a lot. Even if it were, you know, the 2% the standard of living to, to cover inflation that you would expect or hope that workers would get, it would be much higher than 17 percentage points in 50 years. Executives haven't had trouble nearly doubling their pay in just the past 10 years, but they're the ones telling us that if they pay workers living wages, that they then have to raise prices. Yeah, they claim that it's unsustainable to pay workers living wages. Yeah, but last I checked, hiring a skilled software developer cost you about 250000 a year here in the Midwest. Right, you're paying them about a hundred thousand. You're usually about another hundred thousand in HR nonsense and benefits. You know, health, dental, whatever they need to do their work. Right, and then usually there's like, if we just leave some room for taxes and and, and equipment, it's a quarter million dollars to get a software developer. Twelve and a half million dollars gets you a bunch of software developers. That's that's a lot that they could put into a product, a team of, you know, sorry, let me do the math. 50 Four. software developers? Yeah, 50 software developers is enough to make a AAA video game. Holy shit. And that could come from the pay of one executive. Yeah. And most of these companies, like when I worked at TDA, there were more than a dozen executives. Duh. So that's, that's ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at just a living wage, not a skilled tradesman's wage, because I was talking about paying this person $100,000. If you give somebody the median wage in the country, right, like thirty, forty thousand dollars, an employee typically costs a little more than double what their wage is. So even if you figure each employee is a hundred thousand dollars, that's a hundred and twenty-five employees you can hire at a living wage. Not talking about a raise, I'm talking about hiring new employees at a living wage. So that's just a bullshit story. They could totally pay employees, and plenty of companies do. If we look at Costco or Five Guys. They have no trouble paying their employees much better than this. Much better than the... Ugh. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just getting angry because I hate being lied to repeatedly. And then I hate it when people who haven't done their research just repeat those lies at me. It's so painful. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's dig into a specific strike. Two specific strikes, but yeah. Are you guys for the strike or, or against the strike? I'm generally pro things that put more money in the hands of the middle class. So I think I'm pretty pro-strike at this point. Okay, good. It kind of destroys my journalistic integrity coming out and saying that, but 
But you don't have to use that if you don't want. I just wanted to know before we talk. Uh, I'm a shit journalist anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so we saved a little bit of our research for the discussion around the Kellogg strike. Yep. Because we have uh, a lot of the strike going on here in town. We have a fairly major Kellogg's plant that we walked around. One of the four cereal ready-to-eat plants, I think is what they called it. That that does match what I've heard Kellogg's internal nomenclature say. Yep. So one of the four major plants for the production of Kellogg's cereal is here in town. So we had the ability to go out and check out the strike firsthand. And I kind of was a very shitty interviewer during it. I oh, kept yeah. calling them protesters instead of instead of you know, people on strike or union members. Eh. Information going around about the protest. So you're out here protesting. Can you tell us why negative things that we didn't think were true being said about the protest and about unions? It's, it's not the best word, but it's not entirely inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah, I could have done better. I'll yeah, do better next time. Yeah. And our audio will be a little bit bad for this. But to, to prime us for this, I promised some numbers on executive pay. Mm-hmm. They're really easy to get because you can just Google company name, CEO, pay, or salary, and you get websites that show it. So to contrast and, and show that this isn't just one company, this isn't just Kellogg's, right? This is happening all over. Uh, John Deere is headquartered in Des Moines, Iowa, so like two hours away by car. But it is just one other company that's doing this. And there are others. There's strikes going on in, in Hollywood. There's, uh, oh, goodness. There are bourbon producers going on strike. John Deere's making a bunch of the news. There are TV and film crews on strike. Yeah, so healthcare workers. That's right, so many healthcare workers. There's a bunch of them up in Buffalo. Uh, there's group home workers. So, you know, people taking care of, like, senior citizens that can't take care of themselves. Uh, the Seattle Carpenter Union uh, just signed a contract after a three-week strike. Bus contractors are on strike. So many people are on strike. There's a dedicated page on the AP News for who's on strike right now. Mm-hmm. But I, we picked the the John Deere one because it seemed to mirror a ton of the Kellogg's strike. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really weird similarities. But we picked just the John Deere and the Kellogg strike because they have a lot of similarities. In both, it appears that the company uh, had record profits. Not just record revenue, but record profits. So actual money over losses. Mm-hmm. The executives all make a lot of money. The executives all got raises. And in both cases, there's two classes of employees. There's a, and I kept saying temporaries, more of me being a jackass. System. We've spoken to some of the other people here. It's our understanding there's sort of a temporary group. Yeah, they're called transitionals. Transitionals. Is what they're called at Kellogg's. Yep. But there are two tiers of workers. The newer, lesser paid, lesser uh, compensated with benefits employees, the transitionals at yep. Kellogg's. And then the the full time uh, at Kellogg's are called legacy employees. Uh, that ha- full salaried, full benefits, full everything. But specifically, uh, when these people are talking about not paying their workers or trying to get a make the class of underpaid workers larger... The president at John Deere makes $5.8 million a year. The chairman of the board of directors, who is also the CEO, makes $14.7 million a year. The senior vice president makes $5.3 million. The president makes $5.6 million. I could go on, but I just went to, to DuckDuckGo and searched for John Deere executive salaries, and I got salary.com, and there's a list. You can see them all. They all make millions of dollars. Similarly, at Kellogg's, the vice chairman, uh, the vice chairman of the board makes $4 million. A senior vice president makes five point one. The CEO makes $11 million a year, and in 2018, he bought a $5.6 million mansion. So, yeah, these people are making a ton of money. And specifically at Kellogg's, there's... uh, Kellogg's, uh, as a result of this strike, has decided to, of course, put out their version of what is going on with the strike. And they feel that there is a 
modest amount of misinformation out there, primarily being put out there by the union itself. And they published a myths versus facts sheet for people to read. Ugh, this thing is so rough. It, it was, is. For somebody who has no idea like how any of these things go, that is unaware of history, that is unaware of how words can be contorted, that is unaware of all these things, this sheet would look perfectly reasonable. Yeah, the information in it's rough. It's professionally produced, it looks convincing, and it feels like it makes a lot of categorical claims, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It qualifies things in weird ways, and it just is awkward. So why don't we just run down each of these myths? Sure. So myth number one, Kellogg's doesn't care about serial workers. They claim that that is a myth, and the actual fact behind it is nothing could be further from the truth. We respect and value our employees' contributions and have made contract proposals to demonstrate that. There is nothing concessionary about our proposals, and we are also trying to address the things we know are on employees' minds, including wages and scheduling changes. We're not fighting to strong-arm anybody. We're not trying to take advantage of everyone. We're fighting to be equal. Yeah. We're fighting the good fight. That's all it is. After the pandemic started, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, my daughter has COVID. Oh, well, you don't have any symptoms. Oh, go ahead and come to work. So they weren't concerned about COVID safety no. at all. We just want everybody to be treated fairly. I mean, future generations. If my yeah. Right now, my nephew has to work here. I told him I wouldn't let him apply. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be his... I wouldn't vouch for him to work here because I don't want him to live this okay, life. Right. This is how they're going to yep, treat people. My own brother asked, and I said, no, you have a family. The, the divorce rate here is what, like 60%? Because all you do is work. It's just sad. We just want everybody to have a fair chance at a good life and not have to work 84 hours a week for it. So for a multi-billion dollar company, it is a little bit difficult to believe. Because like, when, you, when you get to that scale... Uh, unless you have highly, highly specialized workers that cost a ton of money and you keep your workforce low, it's difficult to believe that a corporation is going to see them as anything other than cogs. That just tends to be how things end up. It just isn't cost effective for a large company to actually care. So this is this feels like PR and fluff, but we can't really rebut no, this. It, nor can they really like back it up because like how do you even quantify this readily so i say we talk about work-life balance <laughs> on this overtime system it's my understanding you either sign up for hours that you want or in order of seniority they force hours on you yeah. uh and you're saying that he was last in line because he had 45 years seniority and even he's having overtime forced on him oh yeah yeah it didn't matter who you were Literally every single person in that plant got forced to do 12-hour days. Not necessarily every day, I'm not going to say that, but for the majority of it, yeah. It didn't matter who you were, how long you'd been here. If you were if you were alive and in the building, you were doing a 12-hour day. You don't get to see your family. Labor day. Yeah. We, we had to work Labor Day, forced. Yeah. Ah. Labor Day. <laughs> so the labor is being forced to do labor on Labor Day. Yeah, that, that seems backwards. That defeats the purpose of forced Labor Day. to work Labor Day. Which is kind of ironic, if you ask me. Sure. Yeah, there's some of those protesters brought up that among Kellogg's employees at that plant, there was a 60% divorce rate. 
the the amount of overtime they're making these people work and they say it's volunteered but we'll we'll cover that that's yeah. another myth on the sheet yeah they're, they're just not treating them like decent human beings so if they say they care they're not showing it in action yeah and kellogg's is refusing to hire more legacy employees yeah, they want to make more of the employees be transitional instead of legacy. Because the transitional employees are cheap, and the union doesn't want more transitional employees because... Okay, so the union is saying they want fewer transitional employees because that's exploitative. That's probably true. I can't verify what's in their, in their minds. Yeah. But at a minimum, it would dilute voting power in the union, so they want more legacy employees. Yeah. Yeah. But if they get... If they're allowed to remove the cap, they will change the balance of people like us who actually work full-time and are fighting for these people now. Let's get that straight, too. When he says full-time, you got the legacy and you got the transitionals. Which is the title we, they Yeah, we all, they work, we all work the same hours, seven days a week, you know, eight, 12-hour days. But, like I said, they don't get the benefits and the wages that we get. So that that's what uh, he was kind of touching on. They're basically trying to change. They're trying to change the voting pool. Like they're going to have a group of people with less and a group of people with more. Because right now, what they have is, like I said, the two-tier uh, pay scale. They got transitionals. Well, right now they have a, a cap where they can only have 30% transitionals. Well, they want to get rid of that cap. Next myth. So myth number two, serial employees do not make a living wage. Okay, so no one's claiming that. Yeah, we, we talked to a bunch of people. Not a single person made that claim. Yeah, they, yeah so this, this myth is just manufactured by Kellogg's. Yeah. And it's to dilute the talking points of the union. The union wants to get the temporary workers up to the same pay as the legacy workers or the, in, the, in the same pay scale. Our biggest issue is that the company wants to make a two-tier system permanent where lower seniority people and anybody coming in in the future will never have the wages and benefits that we have now. Mm -hmm. The, the things Kellogg is saying here that are true, and you'll read the whole thing, I think. Yeah, I will. They're, they're true for the legacy employees. The new employees, they're getting abused. They're getting very little money compared to this. Yeah, yeah. And there's other caveats that we'll get into as soon as I read it. So for myth number two, the, the claim that serial employees do not make a living wage, they say, fact, we are proud that most employees working under this contract have industry-leading pay and benefits. All have above-market wages and retirement. In fact, the average 2020 earnings for the majority of our hourly serial employees was 120000 and more than one-third earned between 120000 and 200000 Actually, we're protesting for the lower-tier wages. If, if somebody would come get hired now under what they want, they'll never be a legacy employee. They would always be below the legacy employee, which is 11 to $12 difference from what we have. It sounds like a... The transitional employees are making uh, significantly less than the full-time employees. Is oh, yeah. that your understanding? As a transitional employee, I make uh, 1950, 1970, somewhere around there. I'm not sure ex exactly. And then the uh, legacy employees' uh, top wage is $35 an hour. So I could be doing the same exact job right next to them and be making, you know, almost half as much. Or what we made a year, 120,000 a year. I averaged 80 plus hours a week. 
80 plus hours a week. But never mind that. Let's go back to what our CEO makes a day. A day. Our CEO makes almost 32000 a day. So let's pay attention to their wording here. They said we're proud that most employees. That's because the union negotiated that a maximum of 30% of the employees could be in this transitional category. Yeah. They're not they're not giving these good benefits to the employees because they choose to. They're doing it because they're contractually obligated to. That's a major sticking point. And their choice in the matter is demonstrated by what they're trying to do with the union now by removing that 30% cap on transitionals. Yeah, so in 2015, they made a contract that would last uh, five or six years. It's expiring now. And this contract said that there was a 30% cap on the transitional workers. And that's a cap. Mm -hmm. They didn't say they had to. And they went straight to the cap and stayed there. Yes. So if you actually cared about workers, why wouldn't you start moving some of these people over? Very few of them have moved from transitional to legacy, and now they want to remove the cap in this next contract negotiation, and they're trying to sweep under the rug that they're, expo- that they're exploiting these, these 30% of their workforce, and they're trying to put these numbers out there. Yes, $120,000 is a lot of money. But when we interviewed people, it was people who'd been working there for 20 years. They are expert cereal manufacturers. And these people work at the company, and it still is cheap to go buy a box of cereal. It's, yeah, it doesn't significantly raise the cost to have people with a professional living wage making this consumer product. Because they're putting out, when we talk to them, millions of pounds a month of cereal. Yep. When we started, our average was about... Anywhere from 8 to 10 million pounds a week. Pounds of, of food, right? Cereal. Cereal. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, for the other part, most also have unparalleled, no-cost comprehensive health insurance, meaning they pay nothing for their health care, no premiums, no deductibles. Again, the most, that's the 70% of people who are fully covered by the union. That's the 70%, not the new workers. Well, they go on to say, less senior employees have the same health insurance plan that all of our salaried employees have, except they pay much lower employee contributions. The union agreed to this in 2015, in exchange for free health care pension plans wage increases and a $15,000 signing bonus. Now they want to go back on that agreement. If we make a contract that expires in three months, and then after three months, I want to do something that's not in the contract. That's not going back on the agreement. No, not at all. And there was entered into the agreement with the explicit expectation that this was going to be temporary. The union, all the workers, felt that this was a temporary arrangement, a temporary concession to Kellogg's in order to keep them going through the financial rough they were experiencing in 2015. But it's been going on this whole time, so... Yes, so new contract, profits are way up, it's no longer necessary, it was never meant to be permanent, and now they're not only trying to make it permanent, they're trying to take away even more when they have record profits. Now, when you talk about the, the multi-tier system, we've spoken to some of the other people here. It's our understanding they're sort of a temporary group? Yeah, they're called transitionals. So in 2015, when the contract came up, uh, we agreed to let them do this transitional program, and that means you start as a transitional. You make less than the normal, regular full-time people, but which the word implies you're going to transition to full-time. So now this contract, they don't want to honor that. So they want to they want to keep them transitionals as lower pay, lower benefits, 
So it's making permanent this two-tier system, which right. is the core complaint. Right, and the company's saying that we agreed to it, but we didn't agree to them keeping the system. We agreed to them. The word transitional is just what it means. They're transitioning to something. Now the company's saying, no, you're not going to transition to anything. The category of workers that make less money are even called transitional workers. They were supposed to transition from this low pay to better union pay. Yeah. So the, nothing about that is, is going back on the agreement. This is... Just this, Kellogg's being salty that they can't force a worse agreement on them and make even more money. Yeah, pretty much. I don't want salt in my cereal. Why can't Kellogg's be more sugary, like Frosted Flakes? But you love salt. Not in breakfast cereal. Okay. Just because I'm an evolved American and have a higher salt tolerance doesn't mean I want Tony the Tiger to give me fucking salt. Okay. Salt and ice cream is really good, though. Okay. <laughs> I got nothing. You got nothing. You got nothing. Uh, what's myth three? Okay. Kellogg's is asking employees to give up health care, retirement benefits, and vacation pay. That's, I mean, aside from, like, the, the transitionals getting less, I, I, we didn't really hear yeah, that. Th this seems to be another manufactured thing. There weren't any signs about this. We're seeing ho signs. Stop playing games. We want to work. Honk for support. We want to save the middle class. The big Kellogg's K, the symbol of corporate greed. We strike for equal rights. BCTGM50, keep jobs in America, support essential workers. It wasn't even brought up offhandedly by the yeah. people on strike. They say, fact, Kellogg's proposals not only maintain industry-leading pay and benefits, but offer significant increases in wages, benefits, and retirement for all hourly serial employees. Okay, so important context there. There technically are plans for workers to become like the full benefits, the full package employees after so much time. But it is engineered in a way where their contracts don't last that long. The transitionals will never, they do not have a path to ever become full-time like us. So took that away. you're saying that new employees, when they're coming in, they won't have a chance to get like a, a, a real wage? They will never get our benefits. They'll never get our benefits. They'll never get up to our wage. They offered a six-year path to what we have with a five-year contract. Yeah, several different people. We tried to talk to everyone who was at the plant when we went there. We yeah. literally walked around the entire plant and went to each group of people on strike and held a microphone up to every of them, every one of them, and asked if they wanted to have a conversation. And from several people, we were told, yeah, this new co or this contract proposed by Kellogg's offers a path from transitional status to legacy status to this more permanent status, but it's always a plan that's longer than the duration of the contract. And common numbers people were saying was, it's a six-year path and a four- or a five-year contract. Yeah. So what the fuck does it matter? It, Kellogg is setting themselves up to go back on their agreement, just like they said that the union was doing to the Minyth, yep. too. And you'll have to renegotiate your contract, and it'll almost certainly be something that prevents you from going to legacy status. Which is what's happening here and now. We yep. have evidence that they're doing this because they've done it to 30% of their workforce right now. Yep. And if it was if it was that straightforward for them to to make that transition, then why do they want to increase the cap on transitionals? Yeah. If they want to if they want to actually increase the size of their workforce, nothing is actually stopping them right now, except the belief they might be able to do it cheaper in the future. Yeah. So it's just yeah, the motivations are painfully clear with everything else. Anyway, myth number four. Kellogg's didn't present our comprehensive offer to the union. They claim fact. In fact, Kellogg's gave our comprehensive offer 
to the union on October 1st and emailed it as well the same day. Unfortunately, the union did not present them to our employees for a vote. What it is, is Kellogg's is trying to pull the blinds over the immediate eyes, saying, we offered them, we offered them. There's nothing given to our negotiating committee at the table to negotiate on. Okay, so what I'm hearing here is Kellogg's is salty that the union didn't violate whatever its own internal processes are to put their whatever ridiculous lopsided yeah. deal up for a vote. That's what yeah. I hear when Kellogg's... Uh, just mm-hmm. so we don't forget, you can get this from kelloggsnegotiation.com, and we'll also read the Kellogg's response when we uh, reach Kellogg's out to them. Kellogg's negotiations. I think you dropped the S. I'm sorry. Did you say kelloggspropaganda.com? Yes. Okay. Kellogg's hourly serial employees are forced to work seven days a week and significant amounts of overtime. This is going to be a fun one. They claim, fact, in 2020, Kellogg's serial manufacturing employees worked an average of 52 to 56 hours per week. However, 90% of the time, employees volunteered for the extra hours. They did bold. 90% of the time, volunteered here. Now, they keep saying that all this um, overtime is voluntary. Well, the only reason that that might be somewhat of a true statement is is that people sign up for in early instead of saying over late. So they are signing to come in early, but if they don't do that, then they're coming in late. So, so it's either way. If you, it's your choice if you're going to come in early or stay late. So they're signing up to come in early. So they're saying, well, they're volunteering for it. Well, no, they're volunteering because it's either or. If they don't volunteer, they get... Voluntold. Yes. Yep. This was a, a common talking point with people because it yeah. sucked up most people's entire life. Yeah. The the idea is that how overtime works for these people, and I know because like twenty people told me. Yeah. A is lot of them did. People have the option to volunteer for overtime, and if you don't, it goes because of rules the union has negotiated already. In order from least senior to most senior, that least senior person who hasn't been forced into a certain amount of overtime is now forced into a certain amount of overtime. The choice that they have is, do you go in early to give your extra hours and you you can sign up for that? That is the volunteer part. Or if you don't do that, then you're stuck with staying late. Because there are so many extra overtime hours that everybody, the full list of seniority, and they even made an example of one guy who had been there for 50 years, was forced into working if they didn't volunteer for a time. So these people were volunteering, just like you said, to pick their time instead of being told a time. Yep, and they... And most of them were making a deal out of going in early instead of late because I mean, they do have families. They have to think about their family schedules. Like if they have to pick up their kid from school, well, school gets out at a particular time and they want to be off their job at that particular time. They don't want to stay late and not be able to pick up their kid. So a lot of them, yeah, are volunteering to go in early. But the extra hours they work, that's that's not volunteering. They're not volunteering the yeah. extra hours. They're volunteering when yeah, the extra hours because happen. Because if they didn't volunteer, they would be forced to go in at some time and it would likely be disruptive to their lives. Yeah. People have lives outside of work. They have children. They have other things that they need to do, whether it's a funeral or even just self-care rest. Uh, you know, getting a, a day off here, you basically have to call out. There's, there's not really a, another option. And most people there weren't complaining about working a huge amount of hours. Some even bragged. They're like, I worked 80 hours a week and that's how I made this much money. That's how you make $120,000 or making 35 an hour. Because uh, having been a software contractor, I made $120,000 in a couple years. You do that by making $70 an hour. So half of 70 is 35. So if you're making $120,000 a year at $35 an hour, you're working 80 hours a week. 
So these yep. people are just getting volunteered for a ton of work. That's how much extra work is there. And most of them like it to a point. Yeah. And even the ones that don't like it, they did make a point of saying that's not what they're protesting. They're still here 60 to 80 hours a week, which is not our complaint. We knew coming in here, we worked those hours, and that's not our complaint. Our complaint is the way they're treating new people. Yeah, they're protesting that the transitional people that are either coming in new, they didn't sign up. These newer workers didn't sign up for this ridiculous amount of work, and a lot of them are leaving because they're not getting the same pay as the people who've been there. The thing with that two-tiered work scale, or that pay scale, is the, the lower tier, they're having a hard time keeping people. So we've had a, like a 40% turnover of these people coming in at that lower tier. You know, when once they come in, they find out they got to work the seven days, 12-hour shifts. They're like, well, I'm not making what this guy's making, so I'm out of here. Right, hang on. Did I, did I hear you correctly? Did you say 40% turnover? That's correct. That, I'm muddling this. The core of their protest is that the transitional people aren't making the same pay. Yep. And the lack of that pay is causing a, a high degree of turnover. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the people, and I can't vouch for these numbers, but multiple people were giving me numbers between 30 and 40% for turnover. That's like fast food turnover numbers. It's crazy, especially when you contrast it, because they, they talked about the turnover rate like 20, 30 years ago. When I started, which is only like eight months before Mike, our turnover was no one left. We either died or retired. <laughs> we, we had a guy that retired at, well, they kind of forced him out, but he had almost 50 years of seniority. Wow. That's that's impressive. 50 yeah. years. And that says Actually, a lot about the company at that time. If, if somebody's willing to stay here for 50 years, like he said, uh, when, when we started, the average seniority in the plant was 24 years. Not, not even. It was like the turnover rate like 10 years ago, right? The turnover, yeah. Yeah. But like before all of this transitional stuff started, they said that pretty much if you get hired there, you just don't quit. Yeah, you either die or retire. Yeah. Right. So that's that, that that's it. It's they 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 liked working there. It was good pay. They were loyal to the company. And that's pretty much a dream situation for a lot of companies. Like yeah. hire somebody once you have them for life. That's it's pretty sweet. Yeah, you get to build up the the skills you want in the employees, and the employees liked it because it was stable. A lot of them were proud to work for Kellogg's. There was there was a pride in them making a product that everyone recognized and that was valuable. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's yeah. There's there's so many good things to say about it. Even if you don't like the cartoon tiger, right? Just read the vitamin and minerals down the side of one of those boxes. It's it's hard to be mad at breakfast cereal nowadays. Yeah, but they're finding a way. Yeah. Myth number six. They claim, or they say, we are threatening to send jobs to Mexico if the union does not agree to our proposals. And they say, fact, we have not proposed moving any serial volume or jobs outside of the U.S. as a part of these negotiations. Why are you guys out here protesting? Well, for uh, fair rights, uh, two-tier system they want to implement and um, take away some of our benefits, move some of our pounds to Mexico, which they say that's not true, but it is. When you say pounds, you mean uh, pounds of food made here, and that equates to jobs here. Well, pounds made there. So, like, we're, say we do a million pounds a month. So if they take 300,000 pounds of that and move it to Mexico, let's take it. And that's jobs that go to Mexico. Yes. Now, there's also some videos on the Kellogg's Negotiations website, and let me double-check the email. Yeah, just every place where Kellogg's officially comments on this, they always make sure to in their sentence include the phrase, part of these negotiations. 
every single place you see it. That tells me that they're trying to be honest in a legal sense in case there's a lawsuit or something. But it also tells me that at some point they did threaten to send this stuff or the, to send work or uh, volume from the factory to Mexico. Yeah, that was another recurring thing we heard from the strikes. Yeah, many strikers said this. Yeah, so... Yeah, the the words these negotiations provides enough wiggle room where maybe they're technically correct, but they're not yeah, being may- really honest. Maybe that email they said they sent didn't include it, but uh, it's not too hard to just bring your employees in to a, to a meeting and just say, yeah, we're sending your jobs to Mexico. If you know that they're planning a strike, say that the week before the strike. It's not hard. We don't know that that's what happened, but many of the strikers were under the impression that there were threats of sending the jobs to another country. Yeah, specifically by transferring uh, tons of production to a different plant. Yeah, this plant made a, I want to say a ton of cereal, but that's doing it a giant disservice. <laughs> the unit that was being talked about was millions per month. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, quite a bit. And the factory's gigantic. With number seven, they say, we are trying to force a two-tier system in these negotiations. What the fuck? company wants to make a two-tier system permanent. Two-tier system they want to implement. They want a two-tier wage system. Two-tier system. That two-tier work scale. For the lower-tier wages. Two-tier system. There's a two-tier wage system. And then any new hires would stay in that bottom tier. That's literally what they're trying to do. There's no way to look at the evidence that's, oh, oh God, I'm going to have an aneurysm. They claim the fact is (sighs) the union agreed to a two-tiered system in 2015 to help address rising labor costs, which were out of sync with the market and the rest of our network. We paid a $15,000 signing bonus to each hourly serial employee in exchange for these changes. Now the union wants to go back on that agreement. It's we, not going back on an agreement we covered when the that agreement earlier. expires. We, we covered that earlier. I'm still grinding my teeth now, though. Okay. They go on to say, in these negotiations, we are offering a compromise, a progression to the full wage rate for employees with zero to six years of service. All employees hired in 2015 would receive the top wage rate under our current co- proposals. We are proposing that employees hired from 2015 on keep the same health care they have now. This is the health care that all of our salaried employees have, but these employees pay much lower employee contributions. I don't know how to reconcile some of these claims with some of what we heard because there were several employees that we interviewed that just said that the transitional employees do not have health insurance or have to pay much more for health insurance. Yeah. So there just is a contradiction here. And I don't know who's right or wrong because we don't have evidence either way on this. Usually in health insurance, if you're paying less into it, like if you have a smaller premium, then you have a higher deductible. That's just usually how that goes. So you're saying one way to reconcile this might be that the transitional workers have the same plan and name, but a different set of options that result in a much higher deductible. Yeah. Okay. That's but, one way to reconcile it. Okay. But we don't know that. No. We don't, we don't have any particular evidence and there's no... No, we've not been given any pamphlets or paperwork showing exactly the nature of the, the Kellogg's employee health plans are. Yeah. So we simply don't know if it's a... Kellogg's is lying or the union is misinformed. But looking at the rest of this, I mean, we can pretty strongly say that the union that the union is correct on most of these points. Yeah. I have no reason to doubt them here. Okay. Myth number eight. We are asking employees to give up holiday pay. Not a single person we spoke to mentioned holiday pay. Yeah, yeah. Again, they were generally proud to work long hours. They yeah. didn't like going in on holidays, but uh they did. Yeah. I think holiday pay just wasn't an issue because they were working so many hours, they're like, what's a holiday? 
<laughs> Something like that. Is today Christmas? Uh, it must be. Look at the color of the cereal. The fact portion of this reads, We have proposed that to earn holiday pay, an employee must work their scheduled shifts before and after the holiday. Our intent is to address significant absenteeism for those shifts, which results in unplanned overtime for their fellow employees. So I don't... It just strikes me as a red herring. It just is unrelated. Yeah. Nobody complained about this. Yeah. Like, th th this isn't an issue. Th this is not why they're striking. I, I don't know where this is coming from, nor do I necessarily understand what their fabricated response, uh, how that addresses the fabricated issue. <laughs> so I just, I don't know. <sighs> so having worked at more than a dozen places, right? I've been at places that are loyal to the employee, right? I'll say TD Ameritrade was loyal to the employees. Charles Schwab did, did not seem to be. I've worked at many places that just were not loyal to the employee at all. <laughs> Fuck you, Co-Sentry. Mm. There's a few others. Some were like in the middle. Some felt kind of normal, like nationwide. Nationwide didn't feel you know stilt or tilted one way or the other. Your experiences at, although they were brief, at Woodman, right? Woodman did a ton to try to make employees extremely loyal. Woodman was a very weird place. Yeah, they were way on the extreme end of treat employees well, try to make them employees for life. Uh, in my first month there, there were two different celebrations for people in their 40s anniversary. One was their 47th work anniversary there. Pretty good. Yeah. So having seen different cultures, what the legacy workers that had beard lengths rivaling my own said reminded me of the places I've worked that instilled loyalty in their employees and were loyal to their employees. The transitional workers and the workers who just said they hadn't been there very long but were legacies. So if, if working at a place for six years doesn't make it very long. But what these people with less experience described perfectly lines up with my experience at shitty workplaces that weren't interested in long-term stability that weren't interested in retaining employees, that viewed people more as cogs in a machine than people. So the only thing I can take from this is that something seriously changed. And I don't know what changed, but I can assert that something definitely changed between 2010 and now. Kellogg's is a different company than it used to be. Yep. And just every piece of evidence we have, both of these responses, the wordings from Kellogg's, the wealth disparity, the pay bonuses. One of the people we spoke to said exactly those words, even. It's a different company. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no way to look at it that doesn't make us think that. Mm -hmm. okay. But we should also read the uh, response from Kellogg, because I sent Kellogg a very simple email. I'll yep. go ahead and pull it up real quick. I sent them an email that says, uh, it was to investor.relations at kellogg.com. Subject, Omaha Strike. The hosts of the Disevidentia podcast visited the Kellogg's plant in Omaha at 96th and F today. There were accusations that Kellogg's is attempting to create a system of structurally underpaying employees. This was among a few of several complaints. Do you have any thoughts or opinions you would like to share? Would you like to discuss this? Do you want to read the letter or do you want me to read the response? I'll, I'll read the... The, the Kellogg's response. Okay. Do you think I missed anything in that email? Because I wanted to keep it simple. I wanted to give them no, an open fine. microphone. It's fine. Okay. So Kellogg's response reads, Hello, thank you for reaching out. You may attribute the following to Kellogg spokesperson, Chris Bonner. Bonner? Boehner? That's Chris K-R-I-S, so I presume a woman. Yep. I say this every time. I'm bad with names. Maybe I butchered yours. Nothing personal. I'm sorry. But I go on to say, the union agreed to a two-tiered system in 2015 to help address rising labor costs, which were out of sync with the market and the rest of the network. We paid a $15,000 signing bonus to each hourly serial employee in exchange for these changes. Now the union wants to go back on that agreement. <sighs> yes, that again. Our comprehensive offer proposed 
proposes a progression to the full wage rate of approximately $35 an hour for employees with zero to six years of service. All employees hired in 2015 would receive the top wage rate under our current proposals. It also proposes employees hired from 2015 on keep the same health care they have now. This is the health care that all of our salaried employees have, but these employees pay much lower employee contributions. Please take a look at our video media release and visit CalogNegotiations.com for more information. Best Kellogg Media Relations. So now, this is almost a straight copy paste from what we saw in the yeah the so, myth and fact sheet. So some things I'd like to point out: mm -hmm. they highlighted video media release as yep. though it were a link, but it's not a link. It's just blue text. What? What the fuck is this? Yeah, they they didn't know how to make a link in Outlook. It's not a link over in my email either. But my web browser knows that Kellogg'sNegotiations.com is a link, so I'm able to right click that on that and say go to link, or just copy and paste it, right? Well, I mean, when you have like one long thing .com, yeah, that's a pretty yeah. dead giveaway. Yeah, our, our notes program is able to realize, oh, that's a link. Let me let me make that clickable for you. So, Chris, learn how to use your email client. <laughs> Whatever you are, you're not IT savvy. You've nailed the corporate talking points, and I'm sure you're going to get a huge bonus for throwing your fellow employees under the bus because they work for the union, for whatever reason you're doing it. But learn how to use your damn email program. Yep. But other things about the letter. So, our comprehensive offer proposes a progression to the full, in quotes, wage rate of approximately 35 an hour for employees with zero to six years of service. What I heard this say is... Uh, this plan for progression, this is the thing that all the people were talking about. You have to be in for longer than the next contract length. Yep. So if you have a plan to get through this for zero to six years of service, it's all going to be six years and the contract's going to be five years long. It's, it's just the kind of shit these companies put in contracts to fuck you over. I would know I was a contractor <laughs> over a dozen places for you read the contracts very carefully and say no when they try to fuck you because everyone tries to fuck you. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just rambling because this is so obviously one-sided. Mm -hmm. When I went there that day, I wasn't sure if I was going to be pro-union or not. Kellogg's has made me as pro-union as you've heard me as you've heard me talk. That's since. Well, hopefully, except for police unions. I didn't have a strong opinion on police unions other than to know they occasionally protected murderers. I kind of ignored them after the uh, Derek Chauvin was found guilty because I'm like, oh, cool. They didn't protect the George Floyd's murderer and just kind of forgot about them. Well, if it weren't for the direct video evidence, Chauvin would have walked. The phrasing that made me groan. Now the union wants to go back on that agreement. Yep, that again. C can you just, Kellogg's, can you unambiguously say that the, the contract isn't expiring? Say that. Say that. You never said the contract wasn't expiring. You keep using these... You keep using the same words I would use in a game of Magic the Gathering when somebody attacked me and said they wouldn't. I'm like, you're going back on your agreement. <laughs> the fuck is this? Them trying to spin it in a way where they can get sympathy from other people? <sighs> you're absolutely correct, but we shouldn't be giving sympathy to people making $5 million a year. No. They can buy some fucking sympathy. Actually, that's what this is, isn't it? This is an attempt to buy sympathy. Literally buy sympathy. The, the, this whole website is, yes. <sighs> Who is making this website? We should contact that person and be like, you're a bad person. <laughs> For anyone listening, don't threaten or abuse or harass them. But if you can get a hold of them and politely, you know, inform them that they're hurting America, you know, let them know. If they're Russian, congratulate them on doing a good job. If they're American, uh, call them a fucking traitor. If they're a billionaire, I guess they're not a traitor because they're defending other billionaires. But that's not how this works. I don't know. I'm just rambling again. Mm -hmm. You have anything else you want to say on this? Um, On Kellogg specifically, I think we covered it. How much did we cover about John Deere? Just enough to highlight that it's not a Kellogg-specific thing. We dove into 
into Kellogg's because they're here in town and we can dig deeper. You can get firsthand accounts, which is not ideal evidence, but it's the best evidence we can get. And then we highlighted a couple other places that are striking because it looks similar from the outside. And if it looks similar from the outside, we either have the option of expending a ton of effort to dig in or kind of presume that categorically it's similar. But John Deere has a two-tier pay system. Uh, they have executives making almost the exact same amounts of money, you know, 5 to $15 million a piece. They have salaried employees that tried to go work on the factory floors. They have extra workers coming in to man the equipment. They have goofy anecdotes of failing to produce and they're both have employees that superficially look like they're well paid, but are really being exploited. And again, we should stand with these people, because if we can get them out of exploitation, then there's more system, more structure, more help for getting other people, like any of us who are being exploited out of it too. Mm-hmm. I'm rambling again, man. You know, the second half of that line was really good, but the first half, I could hear you cringing. I could see you cringing too, so I know you were cringing. <laughs> All right. How about I do my line again, then you do yours again? Uh, I was not mentally prepared. <laughs> Give me a moment. Uh, oh, God. Okay, yeah, go for it. Occasional car horns in background. Thanks to Keldar for video and graphics work, and thanks to AlphaWolf294 for transcription. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Our supporters at the Evidence Investigator level or higher include Jared, Duct Tape, Keldar, and Lazori78. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc. Intro music was Slow by Pit X. Used with permission.